Folks, this evening's service is going to have a, a different sort of a shape, so I'm, I'm just warning you about that. I'll come and teach in three different parts. Uh, but the first thing I want to, to say is just to explain again why it is that we're not having just the next in our series in Thessalonians. It's, it's to do with the, the presbytery coming next week. I'd intended next Sunday evening to do some book-by-book book stuff with you. Uh, but because the presbytery are coming, I didn't want to, to keep you waiting uh, way into February before we, we started this work. So I've, I've pulled the book-by-book book teaching that I want to do forward uh, to this evening. What we're going to do this evening is very straightforward. Three things. We're going to remind ourselves of why we've chosen to, to think about a, a Bible reading movement, encouraging people in the congregation to, to read the Bible. Then we're going to, secondly, we're going to look at the book of Genesis, which many of us have been reading or trying to read in January. And then we're going to look forward to the book of Matthew, which we've set ourselves to read in, in the month of February. I hope that's uh, pretty clear. So let's start with this first question. Why would I choose to launch a Bible reading movement in a church with such a, a rich tradition of reading scripture, of hearing it preached. I spoke about this at our morning service on Boxing Day. So some of you might have been at that service or watched it on TV, so you'll have heard this. I'm going to recap what I, I spoke about then for, for some time in a much shorter way. If, if you want to hear the longer version and haven't heard it yet, that's the beauty of YouTube. You just go back a few episodes and there it is. You can hear me uh, say a little bit more than I'm going to say now. I began by trying to remind us of the importance of reading God's Word. We began way back in the Old Testament. I, I took you to Moses and to some of what he had been saying in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy reads like a really long sermon. Um, and as he comes towards the end of that sermon, as he talks to the people about the word of God, which he's just brought to them, he, he says this wonderful thing. When I read it and saw it, it, it just hasn't left me. Talking about all that he had taught the people, he said, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. So this is a, a powerful way to talk about the word of God. Not just idle words for you. They are your life. Folks, that's why the Bible's important. For God's people, it's our life. If we have it, we live. And if we don't, we die. The Bible's a matter of life and death in Christian living. Those of you who were with me on Boxing Day might remember a, a story I shared from a more contemporary church, and that is Willow Creek, the Chicago megachurch that was so influential, mostly in the last generation. Uh, at one point a number of years ago, the leadership there asked themselves a question. They said, our church has grown in numbers. We have a lot, a lot of people here, but have our people grown in in wisdom, in, in knowledge, in love for God? It was a great question and took a lot of courage to ask it. Whenever they uh, tested that, I'm not sure exactly how they did that, but when they did test it, they found that the people hadn't grown. 
uh, as much as they'd hoped and, and would have liked. So they set about discovering, well, well, what is it that helps people grow as followers of Jesus Christ? When they considered where they'd gone wrong and where they might want to go right as they re redirected their future, here's what they found. They found that nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on Scripture. If churches could do only one thing, they'd help people at all levels of spiritual maturity to grow in their relationship with Christ, their choice is clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip people to read the Bible, specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. When I first came across this, it, it chimed with me for a, a growing passion I had as a church leader to not only preach the Bible, but to invite people to read it. So that's what I, I did uh, in Belfast, and I'm doing a little bit of that here now too. After mentioning that, um, it's been heartening to hear people catch a bit of the vision I know some people have told me they are trying to, to read Genesis. So I'm, I'm launching this movement. I'm calling it Book by Book. Let me just say a couple of things um, before we go any further. First of all, if you're reading the Bible in a way that's nourishing you and that's life-giving, please don't think that I'm trying to derail you from what you're doing. Uh, that, that would be the farthest from my intention. If, if you're having a good time in God's word and, and are happy where you are, please move ahead with that. This, this is more like an invitation and an option to, for somebody who, who maybe feels stuck with their Bible reading or maybe has never started at all. A second thing I'd say, please don't let this invitation feel onerous. I had one member of the congregation come to me and they said, you know, I'm trying to read my psalm every day. I've got another Bible reading plan. I just don't know if I'll be able to read Genesis in January and, and Matthew in February. As I've just said, please don't see this as an obligation, but only as an invitation and an opportunity. If it sounds or feels like an obligation, then I'd say it's probably not for you at this point. If it feels like a welcome opportunity, then it may be that God's Spirit is, is inviting you to consider something, take a step to position yourself to hear His Word. This might be a good point to pull out the book-by-book book outline sheet. So, hopefully, there might be the odd person who doesn't have two sheets of paper where they're sitting. Uh, one's called a book-by-book book planner. It's just a wee table with a few explanatory notes, and then the others a bit more exotic with artwork and so on. I'm starting with the less exotic one, the, the book by book planner. Book by book is a very simple uh, rhythm of Bible reading. There's no website, no fancy slogan, just an invitation to read through the Bible, one book at a time, and to reflect on its meaning for our lives. Uh, I'll tell you how I got to this point where where I conceived something like this. I'd read through the Bible a number of times uh, throughout my life, as I know many of you have. Uh, mostly I used a plan that was, it was just stitched into the back cover of my previous Bible. 
Um, you, you read three bits of, of scripture each day. You read from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and you read in Psalms or Proverbs. And that was it. And I, I will have read through that a number of times. I got a lot from that. Um, reading the Bible, I think, has been one of the formative practices in my whole Christian life. Uh, I say that I probably found it frustrating at times too. I found that reading three channels just felt a bit fragmented uh, at times. So as those frustrations mounted, probably at the same time I heard or, or noticed a thing that was going on in the culture where people were having book groups. So you'd choose a, a paperback, maybe it's the latest bestseller, you read it and then you gather at the end of a month with your friends and you talk about what you've read. So I thought, well, why wouldn't we do that? Read a book of the Bible, get together at the end of the month to talk about it. So that's the, the movement that I started in Kirkpatrick Memorial. As I've developed the program over the years, if you look at the table carefully, um, the, the, the name is a bit of a misnomer. It, it ends up not being exactly book by book because what we do is we cluster some of the shorter books uh, when we don't want to spend a whole month uh, reading maybe one short book of three or four chapters. So you have some of the minor prophets clustered, some of Paul's short letters. Uh, and what, what happened then, as I did a bit of work on that, a bit of clustering, is that we, we got uh, a 36th month or three-year program. So there it is. Some people have been asking me during the month, what are we reading after Genesis and, and after Matthew? And I say, well, there it is. We'll probably do a bit of work on this and see if we can produce something a wee bit more impressive. But for now, at least we know where we're going. Okay. So book by book, uh, it, it seems tailor-made for us at this moment in time when you've just finished a series in Genesis running up to Christmas and when you're just coming back to a series in Matthew's Gospel, it seems like a good time to quickly read Genesis and then in February read Matthew. So that's what we're doing. I'm going to try and offer some help for anyone who's trying to read the Bible. Each month I'm going to dedicate an evening like this to help you prepare for the next book that we're about to read. I'll maybe do a quick backward glance as well each month, but mostly I'll, I'll be looking forward to help you prepare for the month ahead. So this evening we'll look back at Genesis but we're also going to look forward to Matthew. In, in Deuteronomy, or sorry, in February, what we'll be doing is we'll be looking back to Matthew, but we'll be looking forward to Deuteronomy. I hope that makes sense. So as well as having a, an open forum like this where I just teach, which is quite safe, let's face it, it won't matter whether you've read or not because I won't be able to ask you or eyeball you or anything like that. I'm safely up here out of the road. As well as that, I'm going to offer uh, a conversation or a bit of a book group for anyone who wants to come. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll just do that after the evening service uh, once a month. So this evening we can have a go with that. Uh, if you're free to stay and you've maybe read a little bit in Genesis and you want to come, just go, go for coffee as usual. Grab a cup of coffee and a biscuit. Don't miss that but just make your way through into the multi-purpose room and I'll try and get there as soon as I can at the close of the service and I'll host a bit of a conversation about Matthew, or about, about Genesis, sorry. Um, so 
I don't know what I'm going to get there, all right? I don't know what questions you're going to ask, what you're going to raise, but I'm mad enough to, to have a go. So come and join me there if you think you'd enjoy talking about Genesis. So we're going to have a, a teaching from the front every month. We'll have a, a book group experience. And the third thing we'll do is we'll, we'll keep producing any resources that we think would help you. Uh, and the two sheets that you have there are illustrative of that. But we can, we can do more beyond that. Watch this space as we develop those resources. So there we are, book by book. We want to be a church family that takes God at his word, that his word to us really are not idle words, but they're words of life, and we're going to read them. That's what we're going to try and do. Let's sing a, a song together just now that allows us to commit ourselves to being people of the word, to, to really uh, stand on every promise of God's word. Please take a seat. Just now we're going to read a short passage uh, to reflect the reading that we've been doing in Genesis, right from the very end of the book, uh, from chapter 50. Lorna's going to read for us from Genesis 50, beginning to read at verse 15. Thanks, Lorna. So, how did you get on reading Genesis? Or if you maybe haven't been doing that in recent times, I'm asking you to, to remember, how, how have you ever got on when you've tried to read the Bible? Uh, tried to do more than maybe a verse at a time or a short Bible study. Just tried to read God's Word. Did you ever find that, that reading the Bible, you're, you're, you're struggling and you're, you're simply not getting it? If so, you're not alone. The Bible is, is a difficult book to grasp in some regards. It's contextually rooted literature. It's written by an ancient people, an ancient Near Eastern culture. In other words, it can be really confusing for modern readers. Many of us want to read the Bible, but when we actually get started, sometimes we find that it's quite difficult. 
what do we do with all those difficult passages? Maybe, maybe you know about what would be in the Bible if you, you read right through it. What do we do with the violence, the slavery? Aren't there difficult instances of how women are treated? And why in Genesis is there a talking snake? Sometimes the confusion and frustration can, can knock us off and our best intentions don't, don't last. We stop reading. Folks, that's why we're doing this. That's why I want to offer some accompaniment, why uh, I want us to encourage each other to read the Bible. In January, we've been reading Genesis. I didn't get much time at that uh, Boxing Day service to really introduce you properly to the book of Genesis. We did have a bit of a head start because we'd studied the first quarter or so of the book, but um, we, we didn't certainly give you much of a steer for the rest of the book. The one thing I did say is that Genesis has four main literary movements. This might be a good moment to grab your Genesis poster. So it's on one side. If you've got a, a Matthew poster in your hand, then you should also have a Genesis poster on the other side. If you have a quick look at that poster, I'll make one observation. There are four movements there, which you might not spot immediately. The whole of the left-hand side of the page deals with the first movement, chapters 1 to 11. They're given a bit more prominence because they're so significant. Do you remember when I was preaching, I said that some commentators called Genesis 1 to 11 the first half of the Bible, not only of Genesis, but of the Bible. It's so significant, so foundational. And then... There are three more movements in Genesis on the right-hand side, the one dealing with Abram, the one dealing with Isaac and Jacob, and the one dealing with Jacob's sons. We're not going to spend too much time. Uh, we're just going to move through the whole of Genesis in seven or eight minutes here. But the, the first movement we, we remember well, at least you will if you've been with us uh, the, the last few months before Christmas there. It begins with God creating order and beauty and goodness out of chaos and, and darkness and disorder. He creates a world where life can flourish and, and he creates creatures and even human beings to inhabit it. The, the human creature, or in the Hebrew, Adam, is, is made in God's image. God breathes his own life into this creature. He, he makes this creature a reflection of his own good character in the world. And you might remember this. The human beings are faced with a choice then. And the choice is represented by a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the choice is basically this. Will we allow God to define what's good and evil? Or will we seize autonomy and choose to define good and evil ourselves. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve represent all those who follow. Our choice has been entirely consistent. We have chosen to define good and evil ourselves. Everything spirals downward. In a sermon series, we talked about an avalanche of sin in those early chapters of Genesis. We traced a a rippling, widening effect of rebellion, of fractured relationships. First, it was Adam and Eve. 
then it was Cain and Abel, then it was Lamech. And at every point, God meets this avalanche of human sin with a greater outpouring of grace. We talked about how grace outruns the avalanche. Eventually, out of his love and of his desire to protect the goodness of creation, God washes the world of its rebellion with a great flood. But God promises to rescue human beings, and he never abandons the world that he's created. You might remember how we finished that series in early December uh, with a study in Genesis 11, the story of the building of the Tower of Babel, the epitome of human rebellion and arrogance. Humanity continues always without fail to just choose the thing that brings us back to darkness and chaos. Uh, and God responds by humbling human beings uh, and scattering them uh, across the land. But, but still God won't give up on the human race and he won't give up on this world that he's created. The big question at the end of Genesis 11, at the end of movement number one is this, what's God going to do with these people and with this world? And that brings us to our second movement. Uh, we're in that column there, beginning in chapter 12 with Abram. As God's rescue plan unfolds, we're introduced to Abram. And the movement into Genesis 12, it creates a, a major shift in how the Bible works. Up until this point, everything's been, been wide-angled lens. We're looking at the whole of humanity in chapters 1 to 11, the whole of the human race. But now with this movement, the, the, we zoom down on, onto God's acts with one person and one family. If you did read the Abram account, I wonder if you experienced it like I have. It's, it's kind of frustrating. You have a guy who takes steps acting in obedience and faith, but he does some poor things, makes some bad choices. The story is littered with failure. Despite Abram's feelings, God sticks with him and he's faithful. He enters into a, a redemptive partnership, what we call a covenant with Abraham, and it's going to develop progressively through chapters 12, 15, and 17. God promises good things to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you a land for them to live, the land of Canaan. God also promises to reach the whole world through Abram and his descendants. This Abram story is key in the whole of the Bible. God's plan to rescue a rebellious humanity and the entire world is going to happen through Abram's family. They're going to become the carrier of the blessing, the original blessing, that vocation that was given to God's people, first of all, in the garden. Through Abram's family, every nation on the earth will one day be blessed. They'll be reconnected to God and they'll return to their original calling as human beings. So this movement begins with the story of Abram, but it ends with his death. 
the larger biblical story then gets in motion with Abram's descendants, Isaac and Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. So we're in the movement three, Isaac and Jacob. You may well have read this story or remember it from Sunday school. Do you remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob from birth lives up to his name. Do you know what his name means? It means he's a deceiver, a chancer. And that's what he is, right through the whole story. He, he tricks his now blind father into blessing him to steal the blessing that should have been for Esau. It's, it's interesting. God, God chooses to bless Jacob. That's what God is doing right from the beginning of the story right through. But Jacob just lives on as a deceiver and a chancer. He, he thinks that the blessing's going to depend on his own scheming and his own skill. He, he's willing to sabotage anybody else if only he can get God's blessing, get blessing for himself. So in spite of this, with a, another mediocre at best human being in Jacob, God doesn't abandon him. God doesn't walk away and say that this fellow's not really up to muster. He's not the kind of guy I want. Instead, God commits himself further and further to Jacob. At a key point in the narrative, you, you might remember this, it's quite, quite a dramatic moment in the story. God visits him at night as he's camped at a, the side of a river and God wrestles with him. God wounds Jacob in a struggle and, and it's this wound that seems to finally help Jacob to receive God's blessing as a gift. It's a gift that he could never have acquired by himself, no matter how hard he tried. And it's here that God changes Jacob's name. In the Bible, when you change somebody's name, that's always a big moment in the life of that person. Jacob, the, the chancer, the deceiver, now becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God. It's an interesting movement, the Jacob story. What we see here is God committed to fulfilling his promise, even though he's dealing with stubborn and awkward people. The final movement is the, the story of Jacob's sons. It, it ends up becoming the story mostly of one of those sons, the story of Joseph. You might remember Jacob's relationship with Joseph is, is a difficult one because he treats him with favoritism, treats him better than his other sons, gives him that coat of many colors. The 10 older sons, they come to hate Joseph and they kidnap him and they plan to kill him. However, at the last minute, they decide not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Talk about a dysfunctional family where you traffic your own brother. I love the narrative at this point around Joseph. Three times the narrator interrupts his telling of the story to say, the Lord was with Joseph as he landed in Potiphar's household. He, he was with him as he landed in prison. He's with him to bring him out of prison and into Pharaoh's court. Joseph, as you'll remember, becomes, comes to be second in command of all of Egypt. And then during a famine, he saves all of Egypt and also his brothers 
who'd betrayed him. I don't know if you've ever made that connection. If Joseph doesn't go into Egypt and end up in the role that he's in, it's very possible that his family starves to death. He's been put there to save his brothers who betrayed him. So once again, as in, in the other stories, you have lots of folly, lots of human sin, but God's faithfulness. God subverts even the evil of these brothers. They'd wanted to kill Joseph. And God turns it into an occasion to save their lives. In fact, uh, and this is why I wanted Lorna to read this passage. Near the end of the book, we have Joseph saying this, you planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. There's a whole lot that we could do with the book of Genesis, but I want to focus for two minutes on this. Joseph's words are placed strategically at the end of the book to summarize all that's been going on in the book. It's not only summarizing that part of the story to which it pertains, Joseph and his brothers. It's summarizing the whole history of the people of God up until that point. You planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, for the saving of many lives. I'm going to suggest that actually that summary stretches forward from the point where Joseph speak, spoke it. To, to explain the whole of human history. You planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, for the saving of many lives. Folks, God created a world, do you remember? It was good, it was good, it was good. It was very good. The opening words of Genesis. Here we have the closing words of Genesis. You planned it for evil, but God meant it for good. In both cases, it's the Hebrew word tov, meaning that goodness that reflects who God is. God's goodness in creation, the goodness he, he intends for creation. So you have this incredible thing at the end of Genesis where all that messy sin that we've read about in 50 chapters, God says, be that as it may, and all your future sin not yet, not yet written, be that as it may, I will take it and I will work it for good, for the saving of many lives. It's just wonderful, this book of Genesis. What's going to happen to this family of Abram left in Egypt We'll have to read the next book, Exodus, sometime soon to find out. Folks, what have you learned as you read Genesis? What questions do you still have? As I said, I'll host a, a discussion in the multipurpose room during coffee time uh, for anyone who wants to join me there. Grab a coffee and I'll see you out there. Let's sing together at this point. I was thinking what song could possibly sum up that tumultuous book of Genesis. Well, uh, it's all that, all that human sin, all that avalanche of human sin, but the grace that outruns the avalanche, God's faithfulness in the end. Let's stand and sing about our faithful God, faithful one.
Please take a seat. So in February, we're going to be reading Matthew's Gospel. I'll say a couple of things about that. I'm glad that it's the 23rd of January and not the 31st, because I haven't finished um, reading Genesis yet. A second thing I'll say about that, there's a kind of a, there's a beauty with book by book where although it looks like, it looks like a program that runs for three years, another way of looking at it is a month by month invitation to read one book of the Bible. So if you didn't read Genesis and you aren't going to get the chance to read Genesis, why not read Matthew in February? Okay, open invitation. We're going to be reading Matthew's gospel. I thought rather than me trying to introduce it and teach it, I thought I'd take the opportunity to introduce you to a great resource. So the Bible Project, uh, some of you will know this and it's, it's old hat for you. Uh, forgive me, a lot of people here probably won't. So that's what I want to take a few moments just to introduce you to the Bible Project. They've been producing resources for a number of years now to help people read the Bible. So the posters that you have there, I printed those off the Bible Project's website. They have accompanying videos, uh, which uh, I'll, I'll show you one in a moment, but they are fantastic. Uh, I need to tell you how it felt to me when I discovered these. I watched the first video or two, I watched the first one, I thought, goodness, that is unbelievable. And then I watched the second one and I thought, my goodness, that is staggering also. And then here's what I thought. I spent 30,000 Canadian dollars on a theological education and I'm watching these eight minute videos and I'm learning a whole lot. That's what I thought. And then I had another thought. I better not show these to my congregation. They're so good, I'll be out of a job. But I got over myself and started to share gospel project or uh, yeah, uh, Bible project resources with people. Tonight we're gonna watch one of the wee videos because the video itself is incredibly instructive. It's brilliant Bible teaching, much, much better than I could do in eight minutes. Um, Matthew's gospel, it's a, it's a pretty long, uh, you have plenty of content there. So what they've done is they've split Matthew's gospel into two videos. So this is only Matthew part one. We're gonna watch the first part. What, what you'll learn in eight minutes, you'll learn how the whole book of Matthew holds together and how it works. You'll be reminded of some of what we said in our previous uh, teaching series in Matthew's gospel. You're going to hear, if you listen carefully, you'll hear stuff that we've said this morning and last Sunday morning. I think you will love it. I should tell you, the video does last for eight minutes, and, and by the standards of videos we show in church, that's quite long. It's not, it's not a wee two or three minute video, it's eight minutes. So just settle, relax, watch, Sit back, pay attention. If you do, you'll get a, a wonderful, inspiring invitation to read Matthew's Gospel. What you'll do, I think, is you'll go home and you'll, you'll watch it again um, as you're reading Matthew's Gospel because it's such a, a brilliant resource. So let's, let's watch this Matthew's Gospel video just now. 
The Gospel according to Matthew, it's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now, this design is very intentional, and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises, that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt he passed through the waters of baptism, and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher, and he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Now, in the first section, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus steps onto the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And this is really key. The kingdom is, in essence, about God's rescue operation for his whole world. And it's taking place through King Jesus. Jesus has come to confront evil, especially spiritual evil, and its whole legacy of demon oppression and disease and death. Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world by creating a new family of people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. So, after Jesus begins healing people and forming a movement, a community, he takes his followers out to a mountain or a hillside, and he delivers his first big block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And here Jesus explores what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom. And it's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. So the poor, the nobodies, the wealthy, the religious, everybody is invited and is called to turn, to repent, and to follow Jesus and join his family. Jesus says that he's not here to set aside the commands of the Torah or the Old Testament. Rather, he's here to fulfill all of that through his life, through his teachings. He's here to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly love God and love their neighbor, including their enemy. After concluding his great teaching on the kingdom, the next section shows Jesus bringing the kingdom into reality in the day-to-day -day lives of people. So Matthew's arranged here nine stories about Jesus bringing the power of God's kingdom into the lives of hurting, broken people. There are three groups of three stories, and they're all about people who are sick, or have broken bodies, or they're in danger, and Jesus heals or saves them by these acts of grace and power. And then right in between these triads, we find two parallel stories about Jesus's call that people should follow him. Matthew's making a point here. One can only experience the power of Jesus's grace by following him and becoming his disciples. Now, after Matthew has shown the power of the kingdom through Jesus, Jesus then extends his reach by sending out the 12 disciples who are going to go do what he's been doing. And this leads to the second large block of teaching, chapter 10. And here, Jesus teaches his disciples how to announce the kingdom and what to expect once they do. Many among Israel are accepting Jesus and his offer of the kingdom, but Israel's leaders, they aren't. They stand to lose a lot if they repent and become disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus knows they're going to reject him and persecute his followers, which is exactly what happens. In the next section, chapters 11 through 13, Matthew has collected a group of stories about how people are responding to Jesus and his message. And it's a mixed bag. So some stories are positive. People love Jesus and they think he's the Messiah. Others are more neutral, like John the Baptist or even the members of Jesus' own family. And they make it clear that Jesus is not what they expected. And then you have Israel's leaders. They're entirely negative. You have the Pharisees and the Bible scholars. They all reject Jesus together. They think he's a false teacher. He's leading the people astray. They think he's blasphemous in these exalted claims he's making about himself. But Jesus isn't surprised or thrown by all these diverse responses. In fact, he focuses on it in the third block of teaching, chapter 13. Here, Matthew's collected together a bunch of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, like about a farmer throwing seed on four types of soil, or about a mustard seed, or a pearl, or buried treasure. These parables are like a commentary on the stories that you've just read in chapters 11 and 12. Some people are accepting Jesus with enthusiasm. Others are rejecting him. But God's kingdom is of ultimate value, and it will not stop spreading despite all of these obstacles. So that's the first half of the gospel according to Matthew. Now here's a few more things to look for as you read through these chapters. Matthew's presenting Jesus, remember, as the continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament storyline. So look for how he weaves in quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. And what you'll find is that they're placed at strategic points in the story, explaining more about Jesus and his identity. So stop, take time to go look up these references and read them in their Old Testament context. And most often you'll discover really cool, interesting connections. Lastly, pay attention to the types of people who accept Jesus and follow him. And you'll see that it's most often people who are unimportant, they're nobodies, or they're irreligious. 
And these are the people who are transformed by their trust or faith in Jesus and follow him. And it's the religious and the prideful who are offended by him. So how is this tension between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? That's what the second half of Matthew is all about. Whenever I watch those videos, I always want to grab a Bible and, and start to read the book. It's such a, uh, such a brilliant introduction, such a, a wonderful framework. Folks, why don't you take home that the printed poster and fold it up into a bookmark, stick it in your Bible as you're reading through Matthew's Gospel. If you're feeling a bit lost and not sure where you are in the journey, just have a look at that uh, poster and it it can remind you of how the book's structured and how it's working at that point. Folks, so there we are. We're up and running with our book by book. We've thought a little bit about Genesis and we're uh, starting to think about reading Matthew together. I remind you of what we said at the outset this evening. Moses' words, these are not idle words for you. They are your life. I remind you of what churches who take spiritual growth seriously have discovered that if you don't read the Bible, you don't grow. You go nowhere. I think they're right. I don't know any mature Christian people who haven't read the Bible, who don't take God's word seriously. So there, there's a, a reality that I don't think we can move around or dodge if we really long to see Jesus build us up as his followers then being in his word is a non-negotiable. We must find some way to do it. Folks, um, that invitation to come and join with me um, this evening, I'd love to see at least some folks there. Don't, don't worry if you can't make it this evening, but I'll try to do that each month, host a bit of a conversation about the book of the Bible that we've just finished reading. Uh, tonight it'll be Genesis. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your intentions for us are so extraordinary. You created us to be co-rulers with you, to have kingdoms. You invited us to bring our kingdoms under yours and into the service of your great kingdom. Lord, now that you've saved us from our guilt our sin, from your wrath and from death. Lord, you've birthed us to a new life and it's life in the kingdom. It's this life where we are people who reign with you, whose, whose rules are being brought under your rule. Lord, help us to come to you now for every bit of help we can possibly get. Lord, help us to to, to hunger for your word. Help us to beg for the presence of your spirit. Help us to, to come to you for life. Lord, teach us how to live. And Lord, help us with this venture. Lord, maybe for some of us, this is the time when we, we get serious about reading your word, understanding your story, knowing your heart, and being transformed 
in the process. Lord, come and be our teacher as we read your word together. Amen.